You know, we, we live, for us, I think, in pretty unprecedented times. You, if you're watching the news at all, if you're reading newspapers at all, you're looking at what is going on in our world, and particularly in our society. You know, America has always kind of been this beacon of light, right? Christianity, we've all kind of, as it were, slid under the radar, you know, we've got that nice First Amendment out there that gives us freedom of religion and freedom of speech. And, you know, we've just kind of lived assuming that that was always going to be the case. And so we've now come to a place where we're watching our society shift from that. And suddenly the target is moving its way over to us, to where we are being portrayed as enemies of what is good. There's been a redefinition of what makes for good. Um, Our society seems to be morally decaying at an alarming rate. Um, It's disconcerting. As Christians, we are confronted with how to deal with this. How do we deal with this? Um, The passage this morning is going to speak to how we deal with this in the church. How do we deal with this in the assembly? Um, The fact is that the world has always been a place of immorality. The world has always been a place in which the standards by which we live, the standards of God, are not the standards of the world. The lie that Satan told Eve was that if you will eat of this, you can become like a God. You can make up your own rules. Okay, well, that lie has been going on ever since. The world likes that lie. The problem is not just that the world likes that lie. The problem is we like that lie too. That's the problem. We kind of like the idea that, well, if anybody gets to decide what's right and wrong around here, I I ought to be able to do that. And so that lie is not just a, a problem for the world, although, of course, it is a problem for the world. It is... It is a problem which the gospel is the tool we use to bring that about. But the other problem is that we might find ourselves, if we're not careful, um, redefining what it is we hold to near and dear. That we might find ourselves in a place where we kind of take God's clear word and go, well, you know... um, We don't want to offend anybody, after all, right? I mean, we wouldn't want to upset people. I mean, if we were to cause strife or division, you know, that maybe we should just kind of go along to get along. I mean, after all, we're Christians, and we want to be nice people. Um, Well, we are Christians, and we do certainly want to be nice people. We do. But as the screws turn... As society pushes harder and harder, as we are confronted more clearly all the time about what it is the word of God clearly says, the pressure for us to conform to the world is going to increase. Um, We shouldn't be surprised by that. Uh, In fact, I think one of the reasons why this passage is really essential for us today is because I think we've let down our guard a little as Christendom in America. I think we've 
kind of gotten used to being accepted by the culture. We've kind of gotten used to the culture tolerating us and, okay, maybe they don't really come after us, but you know, they more or less leave us alone. Well, they're not leaving us alone. We're watching uh, in various places and in various ways the pressure is being applied. And the question is, what are we going to do about that in the church? Now, it's important to note that the only place we really can in any way enforce any kind of a moral standard whatsoever is within our own assembly. It's not really our job, frankly, to enforce our moral standards anyplace else. Paul will write very clearly to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 9. He writes to them and says, I, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Oh, well, that, uh, keep reading. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with this person. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Do not judge those. Do you not judge those who are within the church? Those who are outside, God judges. Those who are inside will remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Our responsibility is to strive as best we can within the assembly with grace and and compassion. We're here to actually encourage one another to righteous living. But the fact is that if the lies that the world is buying into make their way into the church, if suddenly the pressure is on for us to redefine marriage, for us to perhaps allow people who were clearly born of one gender to declare themselves of another gender. And for us to just kind of go, well, okay, no, no, we, no, we don't. No, we don't. We have the standards that God has given us. And it's important for us to remain strong because the pressure is coming, folks. The, the pressure is coming. Think of the church like a, think of the church like an embassy, An embassy is a plot of land in a foreign country that is your country. If you go to Russia, there's an American embassy there. If you go to China, there's an American embassy there. When you're on that embassy, when you're in the embassy, you are on American soil. You may be in Russia, but you're on American soil. All the laws of America all apply in the embassy complex. Well, think of the church like an embassy. We are the kingdom of God. Here we are. We are gathered as the body of Christ. We are to encourage one another and to strengthen one another and to hold one another up to keep the standards of God. Now, the world is going to do what the world is going to do. They're, they're gonna, they've always done what they're going to do. Our job is to give them the gospel, but our job is to be a beacon, to be the standard, the salt. Here we are. I, honestly, I think as Americans, we get kind of confused about this because we're thinking, well, we have freedom of religion and and the ability to vote. So our religion and our voting and our politics, they all get confused. We have to be careful about that. By all means, vote for those candidates who you believe best reflect the standards of what the scriptures say. Yes, certainly. By all means, do that. But the fact is, when it's all said and done, whether we win that or not, 
whether that works or not, whether the people we send to Washington or wherever we send them, whether they actually make laws that reflect our values, you hope they do. If they don't, that doesn't change our values. That doesn't change what we do here as an assembly. And this is the passage that we're going to look at this morning. Jesus has arrived in a synagogue. This is the assembly. This is the gathering of the people of God. Now, obviously, we don't have synagogues. And when the church started, they started churches. But it's because we went from the old covenant to the new. In the new covenant, you meet in a church. And here we are. But it's very similar to the synagogue in that it is the gathering of the people of God to hear the word of God and to bring forward the truth of God. And if error begins to occur in the assembly, well, how do you deal with it? What do you do with people if someone in our assembly suddenly stands up and says, you know, I think we really need to recognize gay marriage. We, we really need to, as an assembly, it doesn't matter what the Bible says, this is what we need to do. How, do we, how should we respond to that? Exactly what should we say about that? How should we deal with that? Should we just go, well, we don't want to offend anybody, you know? I mean, if your feelings are hurt, we certainly, you know, is that how we should deal with that? Well, let's look at the passage. By the way, this is, Jesus is now, if you've been with us through Luke, he is now on his way to the cross. The cross is months, just just months in the future, maybe less. This is his last recorded visit to a synagogue in the book of Luke. Uh, he, won't, he won't speak in another synagogue that we have a record of. By this point, Jesus has been going for at least two and a half, if not three years. He's been preaching and teaching and doing miracles. At this point, when he shows up in this synagogue, everybody in the place should be falling at his feet and worshiping him as their Messiah. They're not, but they should be. What's going to happen in this account, and you're all familiar with this account. He's going, to, he's going to heal someone, and the official of the synagogue is not going to be happy about it. That's just going to happen. So let's go down through the passage, and let's see how Jesus deals with the problems that this place has. So Luke 13, verse 10, he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. You might think... Well, we know conflict is coming, but it, I mean, it hasn't got here yet. I mean, he hasn't healed the woman. The, you know, the synagogue official is, we shouldn't be too upset about anything yet, should he? Uh, yeah, yeah. The moment Jesus opens his mouth and begins to speak and begins to teach, he's actually teaching the truth of God. And unfortunately, what's going on in the synagogue now is not. This is the problem that has happened They have allowed themselves to replace the clear teaching of the old covenant, which was that you were to look for the Messiah and faith was what saved you. Faith in the coming Messiah. And they had replaced that with just ritual. They had replaced it with this long list of rules and regulations that were all going to somehow make them right with God. They weren't. They weren't going to make them right with God. But that's what had been taught. Well, we can be sure that Jesus got up and taught something else. The moment Jesus opened his mouth, he began saying things like on the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. He says that seven, eight, nine times on the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, he just goes down through a list of things. You have heard it said that you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, all you have to do is look after a woman and lust after her. And you've committed adultery in your heart already. And, And down the list he goes. 
There's a long list of all of these rules and all these regulations. And Jesus goes, it's not just this outward conformity. It's your heart. You need to be transformed. It's not just a matter of you shall not harm your neighbor. You shouldn't even think bad things about your neighbor. If you hate your neighbor, if you would like to murder your neighbor, well, then you're guilty of murder. That's that's what Jesus says. So the minute he gets up and says this kind of stuff, the ruler of the synagogue is already going, oh, why did I let this guy stand up and talk? You can just picture it. But Jesus is the very son of God. He is giving the spirit of the law. This is, this is the spirit of God who, yes, the law gave them a list of things that they should be doing. And it was very clear and it was very laid out. But the, the heart of the law was love God and love your neighbor. And if you loved your neighbor, well, you're not going to steal their stuff and you're not going to lie about them. And you're certainly not going to commit adultery with their spouse. You're going to take care of your neighbor and be kind to them. We're going to watch here to see that the guy who supposedly was most hot about the law of God, he has no such heart. That is not who he is. That is, that is not how this is going to go. Remember when Jesus speaks to the, in the synagogue in Nazareth, his own hometown. He goes in there, he reads the scriptures, says, today these things are fulfilled in your ears. And they start out with, wow, this is, this is wonderful. I mean, this marvelous things he speaks. And then there's another group that says, but, but wait a minute. Isn't, isn't this just Joseph's kid? I mean, he's just, he's just a carpenter's son. I mean, who does he think he is? Out here telling us that this day the scriptures are fulfilled in our ears by him. And of course, Jesus responds to that with saying, well, you know, there were, uh, there were a lot of widows in Israel when, when Elijah caused it not to rain, but that, he, he didn't stay with any of the widows in Israel. He actually stayed with a widow outside of Israel. And, I mean, he just goes down through, right, and gives them a number of examples where, yep, there were people in Israel who could have received the blessing of God, but actually they didn't. And before he's done, oh, they've risen up and dragged him out. They're going to throw him off the brow of the hill to, to, to execute him. Hmm. Um, okay, so here Jesus is. He's again in a synagogue. And here he is speaking. And he's going, to, he's going to talk to this group of people. And he's going to speak truth to them. They don't want to hear it. He's going to say it anyway. It's very important that we stand up and speak truth. We're going to go through the word of God. We're going to go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. We're going to go through it. And you're going to hear things that you might not want to hear. We're going to, we're going to do it anyway. It's one of the reasons why I go through the books. Frankly, if you left it up to me, there are verses I'd be like, mm, yeah, no, we're not touching that one. Um, but no, we have to, no, we're going through them. We're going to go through them. You're going to hear. And you might hear things that you don't like. Join the crowd. You know, this is how it is. Jesus stands up and speaks truth. Now, why? Well, because eternity is at stake. I kind of always hesitate to, you know, steal future sermons. Um, Luke 16 is coming up. It's not too far in the future. Any year or two at least will surely get there. Um, Luke 16 is... 
as I'm sure some of you are already remembering, this is the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man dies and lifts up his eyes being in torment. You know what? The rich man is still in torment. Life's short. All of the people in the synagogue that Jesus is speaking to, they're all long, long gone. They needed to hear the truth, just like we do. So Jesus is going to stand up and he's going to give it to them because it's going to go by fast. So here Jesus is, he's, he's up there, he's speaking, he's teaching in the synagogue and he was in there on the Sabbath. Now there's a woman there who has been sick with an illness for 18 years. Uh, it's caused by a evil spirit and she is now bent double and could not straighten up at all. So here's this woman. She's got a, a clearly open uh, difficulty here. She can't hide it. It's not like she's just got a stomach ache here. She's literally bent over. Um, remember your theology. Remember the book of Luke, if you've been following this with us. Here's, here's what they think. We know this is what they think, right? The minute tragedy happens to someone, well, they must, they're a sinner. Remember, remember the guy who was born blind in, Luke, in uh, John? The first thing the disciples asked Jesus is, so, who sinned, him or his parents? Because, I mean, the guy is born blind. Obviously, he's a sinner. I mean, you know, somebody sinned around here. Otherwise, he wouldn't be blind. Okay, you think they didn't think that of this woman? Here she is, bent over double. She's a sinner. So that about that. I, well, I, we didn't have it to ask. Of course, she's a sinner. He just got done the discussion the last chapter. Remember the people who offered their sacrifices and, and um, Herod came and killed them and mixed their blood with the sacrifices? And they're like, and Jesus is like, do you think those were greater sinners than others? And the answer is, well, yeah. No. No, if you don't repent, you'll all likewise perish. So when we see this woman bent double, you just know everyone in the synagogue is like, well, she's a sinner. She's probably, she, it's been for 18 years. What a tough life this woman has had. Not only is she bent double, not only does she have to deal with that, but everybody in the synagogue is all kind of sure she did some sin. You, you know they think that. That's their theology. So not only are you sick, but it's your fault. I mean, you only get what you deserve after all. She's probably in the back. She's probably where no one's really near her. Nobody wants to touch her. If you touch her, you might be unclean. Well, we don't be doing that. So here she is. Jesus is up there teaching. And he notices this woman in the back. Now, the polite thing to do, the socially acceptable thing to do, the traditional thing to do, the expected thing to do is to ignore her because, well, that's what everybody else does. What does Jesus do? Well, when he saw her, he called her over. That's what he did. There's an error going on in this synagogue. There's a problem here. This woman is being treated like a second-class citizen, and she's not. She's being treated like a sinner. She's not. I mean, she's a sinner like everybody, but she's not a greater sinner than anybody else. This woman deserves compassion. This, This woman deserves the attention of Jesus. Now, 
you're a Jewish man. You don't address Jewish women. You certainly don't address them in the synagogue, and you certainly don't call them up front. I mean, what are you doing here? She says, this woman is an embarrassment. Don't you understand? This, is, uh, this woman is, don't point out what's going on here. Okay, Jesus, he, he just blows past all of that. He doesn't care about their sensibilities. He doesn't care about their traditions. He doesn't, he doesn't care about their social norms. He's not going to compromise the truth. Jesus is not going to be quiet. Jesus is, and he knows exactly what he's doing. Jesus is going to bring the truth to this assembly that greatly needs it. They need to see the truth. They need to know who God truly is, and they don't understand who God truly is. They think God doesn't like this woman. They think God is mad at this woman. They think God has no compassion on this woman. God is standing in front of them in human (laughs) as Jesus. And guess what? Jesus is speaking for God, and guess what? He loves this woman. He cares for this woman. In fact, he's going to fix this woman's problem here in just a minute. Why? Because that's who God is. They need to see truth in the assembly. So, he just, he just walks right past all of that. And they're outraged. You know, we'll see in a second they are. So, he calls her over. He said, you know, come on, we're going to do this publicly. We're going to do this right up front. I'm not going to wait until after the service is over and, you know, make my way over to this woman and bring her back into some room in the back, you know, and, and, then, and then heal her. Because, I mean, after all, we don't want to upset anybody, you know. We, we, don't, we don't want anybody to, you know, ruffle feathers or anything like that. We don't want to do any of that. You know what? Sometimes the cat has to turn around. Sometimes. You just have to do the truth. And that's what Jesus does here. Jesus is ruffling feathers. Jesus is acting with the truth. So he says to her, woman, you're free from your sickness. Now, imagine this. Here this woman is, she's, wait a minute, 18 years she's been bent over, double. The, The way it's described here, she probably can't even straighten out if she's lying down in bed. She's just crouched over, period. That's it. And she cannot straighten out. Not to read too much into the passage, but she's as crooked as the theology of the guy here who's about to start talking. Um, Jesus just stands up and with power and with authority just declares the truth. Woman, you are freed from your sickness. This is, Satan cannot offer freedom. He claims to be able to offer freedom in fact the world runs out there thinking that they've got freedom they're they're not free they're just enslaved to their own lusts and desires and because that's all the devil can offer slavery he can't offer freedom jesus can actually offer freedom and he gives this woman freedom he says it and then he does it so he's called her up front she's she's come up everyone can see this this is not done in a corner. This is not done quietly. This is, he calls the woman right up front where everybody can see what's going on. <gasps> this is a synagogue. What are you doing with a woman up front? What are you making a woman the center of attention? I mean, this was just broke every norm out there there was. She just didn't care. Those weren't God's standards. Those are just their standards. Those are just their traditions. This is how God felt about this. God called her forward. And he lays his hand on her, and immediately she is made erect. 
No physical therapy, you know, no, no. Six weeks of physical therapy and six months of follow-up. No, 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 that's, it's included. It's right there in the healing. He, she hasn't stood up in, in 18 years. Can you imagine how miraculous this is? I don't know about you. I've done jobs where you just bend over. You know, you're bent over for 45 minutes. You get done. You're like, oh, no. you know, it takes you two hours to finally stand up straight again. You know, she's been bent over for 18 years. Immediately stands up. Why? Because this is what Jesus does. The miracles of Jesus are complete. He totally heals her. Her balance is back. All the muscles are whatever. Whatever the muscles, the tendons, the bones, whatever her problem is, it's gone. Fully restored to health. Well, as one can imagine, she's made erect again and she begins to glorify God. Who in the world wouldn't? Obviously, this is the power of God. This is what God does. Here's what Satan does. Satan comes along and, if you, and when Satan gets his free reign to do whatever he wants, he makes people blind. He makes them deaf. He sends them into convulsions. Next thing you know, he's got people jumping into the fire. He's got foaming at the mouth. Jesus, Satan's got all kinds of things he does. It's illness that Satan brings. It's health that Jesus brings. She is now released from her affliction. Why? Because Jesus is the king. And when the kingdom of God fully comes, there will be no sickness. There will be no demon possession or oppression or influence. The kingdom of God is now here with Jesus. He brings it. And you would think... You would think that everyone would be very happy about this, but the synagogue official, those, those butts, you know, by the way, that's how you can tell the sheep from the goats. Just throw this in on the side here. The sheep do what the master says. The goats, they, they always butt. They, they butt everything. They butt everybody. But... Here we are, the synagogue official. He, you just watched the power of God. You just heard the teaching of God. You just heard Jesus get up. And without a doubt, Jesus, whatever he spoke about, was the most magnificent sermon anyone had ever heard. And here he heals this woman. But the synagogue official, he is indignant. He is just, how dare you? This word indignant, by the way, this is the same word. Remember when the, when the two brothers, remember their mom goes to Jesus, you know, James and John, and their mom goes to Jesus, can I, can I have just a quiet word with you? My two boys over here, you know, when you come into your kingdom, could you sit them on your right hand or your left? I mean, who can blame her, right? What mom doesn't want, you know? Well, when the 10 hear about that, this word, they are indignant. How dare you? You know, you can see it with them. This, this synagogue official, you've got to be kidding me. This is your reaction to this? Mm-hmm. He's indignant. How dare Jesus act like this? How dare you come into this synagogue and violate all our traditions? And well, how dare he? He is representing God. That's how he dares. The word of God is very clear. Jesus is speaking as God. So the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus is healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowds in response, there are six days in which work shall be done, so come during them and get healed. Not on the Sabbath. Get that woman to come back later. Well, what if Jesus isn't here later? Well, who cares? Well, I don't care. 
we've seen this before, right? We've seen where Jesus healed the guy with a withered hand. And remember when he healed the guy with a withered hand, he had him stand up too, by the way. The guy with a withered hand, stand up in front of everybody, not doing this in a corner. In front of, and Jesus just says, stretch out your hand. And the guy stretches out his hand and it's restored completely whole. And they're all upset about the oh, healing on the Sabbath. It's like, Jesus is, with particularly the withered hand, he didn't even lay hands on the guy with the withered hand as if that were work. This guy is all upset. He's got this little narrow, Moses said no work on the Sabbath. Clearly you're healing people on the Sabbath. That's got to be work. It's got to be bad. And how dare you do it on the Sabbath? Come back any other day of the week and she can get healed. And if she, she can't find you, you leave here and go someplace else, that's her tough luck. Where's your love? You're supposed to be the guy that represents God. You're supposed to be the guy that represents the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the compassionate, long-suffering, the God of Jonah, who didn't want to go to the Ninevites because he knew God was long-suffering and compassionate and was going to grant them repentance. And he sure didn't want that to happen. He said, I knew this is what's going to happen, you long-suffering, kind, gracious God, you. That's who God is. This guy? No. No, why? Because he has set aside the commands of God and replaced them with his own traditions. He's replaced them with a lie. That's what he's done. He is no longer going back to the word of God and seeing the character of God. He has instead replaced that with his own traditions, with what he thinks is right. Set aside the righteousness of God and filled it in with his own view of righteousness. That's what he's done. Paul writes about that in Romans. They lay aside the righteousness of God and try to establish their own righteousness. Well, you don't get to lay aside God's standards. You don't get to do that. And that's what this guy does. And now he's stood up and he's indignant. He's angry. He's, he's, which is, by the way, what people do when they're confronted. And so he even quotes the law. Six days in which you can do the work. So, so what does Jesus do? Does Jesus go, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean to offend. I, you know, I, I'll just go quietly over here in the corner. Do you have a sensitivity class I can take? I, you know, I'll see what I can, you know. Is that what Jesus does? Is that how he reacts to this in the synagogue where the word of God is supposed to reign supreme? Here's what he does. The Lord answers him and says, you hypocrite. He calls him a hypocrite right there in front of everybody. This whole thing occurs in front of everybody. Jesus is not doing this in a corner. He's speaking openly, clearly, plainly. And he calls him a hypocrite. It's important that we speak truth in the assembly and if we find hypocrisy um particularly open like this particularly by a guy who's aggressive about it a guy who is just you know determined to put forward his opinion as if somehow that trumps the very words of god well if that happens we need to point that out no i don't think i don't think jesus is is angry i don't think jesus is acting in a way that is you know physically threatening or aggressive i don't i don't think jesus is shaking his fist at the guy and he's just speaking the truth you're a hypocrite and he's going to explain it here in just a second why it is the guy is a hypocrite jesus is going to speak truth plainly clearly so he says to him 
very plainly, um, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? Not only is Jesus going to call the man, call out his hypocrisy and call him a hypocrite. I mean, this isn't slander, right? Jesus isn't trying to engage in some kind of argumentative tactic where he's going to insult the guy or that this is just the reality. You have this, he looks at the man, it's like you have a Sabbath standard. You claim to follow the law of Moses and you you claim to be faithful to the law of Moses and to have this great mosaic standard. Well, okay. What about your ox or your donkey? The Sabbath, by the way, was a Saturday. On Friday, you have water troughs and feed troughs. So what do you do? Well, on on Friday, you go out and you fill the water trough and you go out and fill the feed trough. So come Saturday the Sabbath, you don't have to pick up buckets of water and go water your cattle. That would be a lot of work. That would be an enormous amount of work. So you do it on Friday. So come the Sabbath, you've tied your ox or your donkey up. It's very, it's much easier, much less work. And by the way, you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. It's much less work to just lead your donkey or your oxen over to the water trough and let them drink. And you, you, you do do that, right? And the obvious answer to that is, well, of course he does. Everybody knows that's what he does. Everybody knows that's what everybody does. That is acceptable on the Sabbath. That is an acceptable amount of work. And so Jesus looks at him and says, this woman, who, by the way, is a daughter of Abraham. Let's just be clear here. She's not a second-class citizen. She's a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years this woman has been afflicted by the devil for 18 years should she not have been released from this on the sabbath in fact jesus is making the point if he could pick the day of the week when this ought to occur it should be on the sabbath what other day do you want the whole idea on the sabbath is to lay aside our general work habits and to take a day off and to worship God and to think about God and to meditate on the word of God and the things that God is doing. But what other day of the week do you want this woman released from the bondages of Satan? This is the perfect day of the week. This is not the worst day of the week. This is the best day of the week. This woman is released. And by the way, you release your oxen, don't you? You release your donkey, don't you? Isn't this woman of more value She's a daughter of Abraham. I mean, if you're going to release your donkey, you mean to tell me I can't release this woman? You hypocrite. That's why he said it. That's that's why he said it. Because this guy is a hypocrite. He has a double standard. He has no compassion for this woman. He doesn't care about her. He should. By his own standards, he's guilty. He has more regard for his donkey than for this woman. And so Jesus calls him out on it. Verse 17, at this, as he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. It's important when error enters the assembly that we address it, that we speak to it, that we try to reason with those who would like to bring error into the assembly. If you were born a man, 
Do you want to put on a wig and lipstick and try to convince us all you're a woman? I have news for you. Every gene, every cell in your body is male. And you really need to look at what God is doing. And the most compassionate, kind, gracious thing we can do for you is help you become the person God has made you. Not buy into a fiction that you might like to impose. And we do it kindly and we do it graciously until you get to the place where you demand that everyone conform to your view. Then we may have to up it a little bit here. You know, the intensity kind of goes up as this guy is the leader in the synagogue. And, and I mean, he's standing there literally chewing out Jesus. Okay, that's, no, you don't get to chew out Jesus. Particularly when you have a clear double standard, which this guy has. And Jesus points it out to him. And of course, he's humiliated. He should be, by the way. He should be. This is, hopefully, hopefully this guy stops for a second and goes, you know, do I really have a double standard? Maybe I really have misunderstood this all along. Maybe my view of the Mosaic law is actually incorrect. Maybe I should stop for a second and hear what else Jesus has to say. And maybe I should repent. Yeah, maybe you should. Maybe you should. Maybe this event, one would hope, brings about this guy's salvation. I would hope so. But certainly the people, well, they're humiliated, but the entire crowd was rejoicing all over the glorious things being done by him, as well they should. They look at Jesus and go, this is our guy. This now, unfortunately, of course, shortly, they're going to be calling to crucify him because, well, he doesn't really fulfill their views of their Messiah. But this is... For the moment, they should be paying much closer attention to what Jesus has been saying. They should be working on bringing about repentance. This is what they should be doing. This is how we deal with error in the assembly. Again, the world, they're going to do what they're going to do. I don't, you know, I don't. There's nothing we can do about that. We, We can't change the world except live a righteous life with humility and we're not, we don't want to be self-righteous here. We're not, nobody's succeeding at this. We're, we're trying though. We're, in fact, we're encouraging each other to maintain God's standards as best we can. No one's in a hurry here to go after anybody. But we do want to encourage each other to lead godly lives. That's what the assembly is here for. We are the lights on the hill. And if we compromise and dim the lights because they offend people, okay, That is not going to go well. We can't do that. We shouldn't do that. We're not called to do that. We are called to declare the truth with kindness, with compassion, but we're not compromising on the truth. We're going to speak it. And we're going to love one another and we're going to love sinners. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus is acting with compassion all the way through. Even with the synagogue official. This is compassionate. This is going to help this guy, hopefully, see his error. It required this. The guy is humiliated. He should be. In fact, you need humility to come to the kingdom of God. That's what you need. So, let's do the truth. I'm, I'm honored and feel it a privilege to be the shepherd of this assembly. And you guys encourage me. You guys will show up 
assuming most of you anyway, will show up next week, even after this week's sermon. I've preached these kinds of sermons before, and it's encouraging. I'm glad that we are an assembly that is determined to, with kindness and and compassion, hold to the truths of the word of God. There are other assemblies that are not. So it's us, faithful, joining many other assemblies that also are. Let's, Let's hold the line. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your example to us of how to deal with the lies of the devil when they work their way in among us. Um, May we hold truth with compassion, with kindness, but may we hold the truth. Help us, Lord, to continue to serve you and to have the wisdom and insight to maintain truth in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.